Good morning, everybody. Morning. Here. Great. Man, it's so good getting to be with you, New Anthem. I'm really glad I get to be here. Uh, again, my name is Caleb Barros, and I'm a church planter with the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches, the same little group that New Anthem here is a part of as well. And I just want to say, first of all, thank you, not just for having me come here this morning, get an update you about what's happening in Lyons, Kansas, with this new church plant called King's Cross Church, but also thank you for the support that you guys have given us in prayer, but also just relationally has been so helpful. And I love that you guys are not just a church that talks about church planting. You don't just think it's a good idea to multiply yourselves. You are actually doing that. And this church plant in Lyons is a direct reflection of that commitment that you guys have. So just want you to see that you guys are a church that is alive and you are reproducing and there is evidence in Lyons, Kansas. So thank you so much for your support. I'm really eager to share a little bit more later about how other ways you can do that, especially financially and what God's already been doing to help us. So as we dive into this morning, though, would you pray with me? And we'll look at some scripture together. Father, I just want to thank you just immediately that you've placed your spirit in us as we trust in you, Jesus. And you've put that as streams of living water in our inner being. And that's just the best. I mean, no matter what's happening in our life with circumstances and craziness, our joy is not dependent on our circumstances. It's always dependent on you, Father, and you're unchanging. You're unchanging, and you've been already so kind to us in Jesus so that every day we have a reason to walk in life and joy and fulfillment. That we are unshakable in you, Jesus. I just want to say thank you for that already. No matter what's happening in my life or other people's lives here, we have the best reason to be glad you've given us every spiritual blessing in christ so lord you just stir up a thankfulness for that in people here today and also we just look at your word a confidence that you are king that you are resurrected that our lives are rightly founded on you so i ask this in your good name jesus amen amen Jesus was a fantastic teacher, and he often used different images or stories to create a point. And one of his more famous parables that he told is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is teaching a a bunch of people very practically how to follow him, how to pray, how to fast, all these different things. And he wraps up this teaching with this story, and he says, if anyone puts into practice what I just taught you, lives this out, they're like a person who built their house on a rock. And when the rains came and the streams rose and the wind blew and beat against the house, it did not fall because it was built on the rock. But if anyone hears my words and does not put them into practice, does not really live them out, they're like a person who built their house on sand. And when the rains came and the streams rose and the wind blew and beat against that house, it fell with a great crash, with a great crash. And one of the reasons this parable is so compelling, so important, is that it clarifies for us immediately that all of us, whether we realize it or not, are building our lives on something. Every, whether you're, not, you're religious or you don't believe in God, Regardless, you are building your life on some belief and on some way of life. Whether or not you recognize it doesn't matter, you're already doing it. So Jesus says, if you build your life on me and in my teaching, you're built on the rock. If not, you're on sand. 
So this morning, I want to examine why Jesus, like why should we build our lives on him? Why is he reliable and the one that's the good rock and foundation for our lives? And specifically, not just because Jesus says that he is, but he's actually raised from the dead and he is the king over all things. Jesus is actually raised from the dead and want to look at reasons why we can be confident that actually happened. So if you have a Bible, open with me to Mark chapter 16. Guys, I've been going through a whole series, I know, on the gospel of Mark, and we're wrapping it up today with Mark chapter 16. Just a quick little side note here. You might see in your Bible, there's kind of two different endings to this gospel of Mark. There's a longer version, verses 9 through 16, that are added on to verses 1 through 8. Just very simply, we're not going to dive into it a ton, but the earliest manuscripts we have of Mark do not have verses 9 through 16. So I'm just going to teach this morning from verses 1 through 8 as the actual ending of Mark. So let me read for us Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they could, might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. What we just read is the most important moment in history. The center point of of history is what we just read about has the greatest implications for everyone's life in the entire world regardless of who you are and we can't say this about everything in history right whether or not Attila the Hun lived or whether or not Alexander the Great was really that great doesn't have much of an influence on my day-to-day life on how I'm going to live but whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead has the greatest impact on your life Because if you are here and you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus. If Christ was not raised from the dead, your life hard news is based on a lie. It's not real. And at the same time, if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, but God has actually raised him from the dead. This means not only is God real, but God has confirmed who Jesus claimed that he was. So Jesus is actually Lord. He's actually God in the flesh. So this means there should be repentance and obedience on our part. He is the king over everything. If he's actually raised from the dead, this could not be better news and have deeper implications for our lives. So I want to look at is just to show us that Jesus's resurrection from what we see here in Mark 16, Jesus's resurrection is historically reliable and it demands a response. Two things. That Jesus' resurrection is reliable, and it demands a response for us. 
So you might think it's kind of crazy or strange to read Mark 16 here and actually base our lives on it, but I want us to look at there's really good reasons to trust that what this text says actually happened in history. It's reliable. It's reliable. And also that it should have deep effect on our life. So first of all, how do we know this is accurate? How do we know that we can trust this? Well, go back with me to verse 1 of chapter 16. Look what it says here again. It's fascinating. I like this. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Now, if you're like me, when I read Scripture in these kind of passages, I just blitz through the names. Like, they don't really matter to me. You know, like, I, can't, I don't know how to necessarily pronounce them. Salome, Salome, I don't know, right? We just blitz by the names. We don't really know. And so we just go to the rest of the story. But this is actually a critical clue for us that this is trustworthy. There's a scholar named uh, Richard Bauckham who draws out that these names here are listed because they are still living eyewitnesses in this day. Names are often listed in Scripture, in the Gospels, because they are still living eyewitnesses. Another great example, if you actually just go back to Mark chapter 15, verse 21, which you guys just covered, I'm sorry I don't have this on a screen for you, but Mark 15, 21 says this, as Jesus is carrying his cross to Golgotha to be crucified, Mark writes, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Why in the world does Mark mention that Simon of Cyrene has two sons, Rufus and Alexander, in the middle of the story? What a ridiculous detail to add on, right? Like, how does that matter to Jesus being crucified right now that Simon had two sons named Rufus and Alexander? Like, big deal. That means nothing to the telling of this story. Completely unnecessary that Mark adds that. Or is it? It seems that scholars say that actually Rufus and Alexander were very likely well-known leaders in the early church. So as people are hearing this story and writing this down, Mark is giving a clue. Hey, if you want to know more about this story, you should talk to Rufus and Alexander, the son of Simon of Cyrene. They can tell you eyewitness what actually happened and will confirm what I'm telling you. So it's not a just superfluous, unnecessary detail. These are actually critical to the story. Another critical thinker in the early church named Quadratus, he writes this about how this happened in the early days of the church. He says, the works of our Savior were always present, for they were true. Those who were healed, those who rose from the dead, those who were not only seen in the act of being healed or raised, but were all also always present, not merely when the Savior was living on earth, but also for considerable time after his departure, so that some of them survived even to our own times. And he's writing this, the end of the first century, generation or two after Jesus in the beginning of the second century, saying that the people that Jesus healed, that he was walking around with and teaching, they didn't just suddenly disappear when Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. They were still present among us, confirming and telling these stories. So in the Gospels, as we see these names mentioned, we actually should think of them as eyewitness testimony, confirming that this message is true. So Mark is saying, hey, if you want to check up on what I'm saying here in the resurrection, I've given you people to talk to. They're still around. They're still around. 
But not only are the names often listed because they're still alive and can tell us the truth, but also the names themselves, the names themselves reveal the authenticity of the Gospels. I love this. This is so fascinating to me. But if we look at just the names and the way they're used, it reveals so much to us. So back in 2002, there was a really massive study done by a university, and what they did, it's incredible, they figured out all the names that were used in the first century in Palestine, where all the Gospels take place, modern-day Israel, in Palestine, where they took place, they figured out all the names that were used during that time. And they did this by looking on ossuaries. These are like stone burial boxes. We use wooden boxes that quickly deteriorate, but they use stone boxes and would write people's names on them so we can see what names were used. Also, just different engravings on columns like old school uh, graffiti that people would do. We can look at what names they were writing. Same, same then, they'd love to scratch their names on something. Or even the writings that were used outside of Scripture. So they could compile together what were all the names used in the first century in Palestine and what names were most common. Tell, told us so much. What's fascinating about this is that same scholar I mentioned, Richard Bauckham, he did the same thing with the Gospels and Acts. So looking at these stories, he put together all the names that are used and which ones are most common, and he compared them to the other lists from this university. So what are the most common names in the first century used, and how does that compare to what we find in the Gospels? It was stunning. They're almost the exact same, almost the exact same names. So, for instance, the most common male names, Jewish male names, are Simon, followed by Joseph, then Eleazar, or Lazarus, if that's familiar, Judah, but really another way that was written was Judas, John, and Jesus. And then get this, the most popular female names, not on this slide, but they're Mary, Salome, Martha, and Joanna. Now, this is so fascinating because this is incredible. Because this can't happen if you're just trying to make it up. This only occurs if you're accurately reporting what's happening in that day. You cannot make up this kind of ratio. For instance, if I asked you to give me the top 10 most popular male names in Kansas right now, you would not get it correct. You could guess, you might know a lot of people, but if you wrote down what you think the top 10 names are, you might get a couple right, but you wouldn't even get the order or probably the ratio in the right way. You wouldn't do it. Even worse, if I asked you to give me the most common names in Canada 100 or 200 years ago, I'd give you all the time you want with Google, you're still not going to be able to figure it out. This is only something that happens if you just, in your everyday life today, wrote down all the people you talked to for a week or two months, and you wrote down all the most common names, that's the best chance you have of accurately representing that. In the same way, this is what we find in the Gospels. They're accurately reporting the ratio of names in their day. So if the Gospels were just legends that people made up or wrote down 100 or 200 years later in another country, they would not be able to do this. It's only something that can happen if you are on the ground in that day just telling us what actually happened and who you actually met. That's how you'd get this. So the Gospels are inadvertently, they don't even try. Like, it's not something you'd be aware of when you're writing a story. Did I get the ratio right? Inadvertently reliable and trustworthy. What I love about this, too, is that even with the most common names, such as Simon, whenever they're used in the Gospels, we see them qualified. And it suddenly makes sense why they're doing this, because Simon is such a popular name. So one of Jesus' disciples was named Simon. 
And what they qualify his name as? Peter. Simon, way too many people have your name. You're getting a nickname. It's called Peter, right? You're the rock now. You're not going to be called Simon anymore. So it's all these qualifiers that come. Philip or like Simon the Tanner or Simon of Cyrene that read all the time. Or even, I love this too, when people are in conversations, you just see this happen in the text. So there's a man who's crying out for Jesus in this huge crowd, but he doesn't just say, Jesus, hear me, save me. He doesn't say that because people would be like, what Jesus are you talking about? Like there's a bunch of Jesuses here, but whenever we hear a conversation or a moment actually being told, they add Jesus of Nazareth because that's what actually happened. Somebody would have said that in the story to clarify which Jesus they meant. So the names themselves reveal the authenticity of the Gospels. They're inadvertently reliable. Inadvertently reliable. But it's not just these names. It's also who they're speaking about. That it is women who are the first people to witness the resurrection. Another scholar named N.T. Wright, he says this, he makes the point really well. He says, if we suppose that Mark made up most of his material, and he did so so sometime in the late 60s, that's in the first century, not 1960s, right? In the first century, the 60s, at the earliest, it will not do to have him or anyone else at that stage making up a would-be apologetic tale about an empty tomb and having women be the one who find it. The point has been repeated over and over in scholarship, but its full weight has not always been felt. Women were simply not acceptable as legal witnesses. We may regret it, but this is how the Jewish world and most others worked. So he's saying, if someone's going to make up a story and they want other people to believe it, the last people they're going to have as the first eyewitnesses are women. Because they weren't accepted as legal testimony in court in that day. So if you want a story that people are going to believe and take credit with, it's, you'd have a male, a really reliable, upstanding citizen in that time be the first person on the scene. Instead, it's several women that don't even know how they're going to get the tomb open, and they're freaking out. Why would you tell the story this way if you want people to believe it? Because he's just accurately reporting what happened in this day. Accurately reporting what happened. And this was actually a challenge for the early church. People would point out, we can't believe this because women were the first eyewitnesses. But the church did not change their story, even though it cost them. Because they were always going to report the truth of what happened, not what was convenient. They did not change the story. And it's interesting, too, because the women weren't just like sideline eyewitnesses. They were critical eyewitnesses. Again, Richard Bauckham, who I referenced before, He says, in the Gospels, like Mark, the role of the women as eyewitnesses is crucial. They see Jesus die. They see his body being laid in the tomb. They find the tomb empty. The fact that some of the women were at all three events means that they can testify that Jesus was dead when laid in the tomb. And it was the tomb in which he was buried that they subsequently found empty. So the church doesn't just give the women a peripheral role. What we see in the gospel writers is that they're being honest. The women were pivotal as eyewitnesses, even though this cost them. And it shows us that reporting women as the first eyewitnesses strongly indicates historical accuracy. Again, reporting women as the first eyewitnesses strongly indicates historical accuracy. 
And I don't mean by this that we've now absolutely proved that Jesus is raised from the dead. I know that's not really possible to do, but according to just Mark 16 here, do we have evidence that it's really trustworthy? That it's reliable? We absolutely do. So for so many people who've just taken in this word that what we read in the Gospels was made up hundreds of years later or legends, doesn't actually stand up to the evidence itself. If we're being honest, this is an accurate historical report of Jesus. And it says he was raised from the dead. So what do we do with that? What is our response? If this is true and Jesus was resurrected, what is our response? Look with me again at this story. Verse 8 says this, "Trembling, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And again, this is how the earliest manuscripts of Mark end. What a crazy, strange way to end a gospel, right? Like here we have the story of Jesus coming and beginning to teach and calling his disciples and telling them he's going to be crucified, actually being crucified and raised from the dead. And this whole culmination of the most important person in history ends with people fleeing in fear and saying nothing to anybody. Like, why in the world would you end things this way, Mark? Why would you end it on a note of fear? Or does it actually end on a note of fear? This is where when we read today, often we, you know, do devotionals in the morning. A lot of Christians do where they'll read like a chapter in the morning. And if you just do that and you break up Mark, you sometimes miss what's going on in the whole story. But if you read the whole gospel of Mark in one sitting, you'll realize this is not the first time that fear has showed up in this story. So way back in Mark chapter 4, Jesus is sleeping on a boat and his disciples are taking him from one part of a lake to the other. And this crazy storm gets whipped up and the disciples are freaking out. They think they're going to die. So they wake up Jesus from his nap and he gets up, sees the storm, and he rebukes the wind and the waves and tells them to be quiet. And suddenly the wind and the waves are silent, no more motion. And you think the disciples would be like, Jesus, that's the coolest trick I've ever seen, right? You're amazing. That was legit, but that's not their response. The disciples' response is they were terrified. That's what it says in Mark. They were terrified. Like, who in the world is this in the boat with us right now? Because the wind and the waves obey him. This is terrifying. And see, next chapter later, Jesus interacts with a demon-possessed man and he casts the demons out of him so that he's no longer running around crazy like a wild man trying to hurt people, but he's dressed and in his right mind. And people who lived nearby, they come and they see the man who is formerly just a nuisance and terrifying people and they see that he's fine, he's normal. And their response also is not to praise Jesus or to be full of faith. They also were afraid. They were afraid. And again, a little bit later in Mark, see a story where Jesus' disciples, they're going again across that lake late at night, and Jesus had been praying, and he comes out on the water to them, walking on the water, Jesus. And his disciples see this, and they are again terrified, terrified. Repeatedly, as disciples see great works of God, their response is fear. But as N.T. Wright draws out for us, Mark is trying to teach us that fear should be overcome by faith. Fear should be overcome by faith. 
Because in each one of these stories, after Jesus calms down the wind and the waves and his disciples are terrified, his response to them is, where is your faith? Don't you know who I am? Where is your faith? Well, the demon-possessed man and all the people are afraid that they've seen he's healed. He now goes, shares his testimony, and people's fear turns into amazement. And as Jesus is walking on the water and his disciples are freaking out again, he says to them, take courage. It's I, it's me. Don't be afraid. So every time his disciples see something incredible and have fear, Jesus turns that into a moment of faith. Fear should be overcome by faith. That's what Mark is trying to teach us. And I feel this for us today. Because if there's a word that captures our response in 2020, doesn't it feel like fear captures that pretty well? All that's happened, how much fear is rising up in people's hearts. And that's just with the big major things happening across our culture. If we get down into the minutia of our lives and what's going on for you, I'm sure we can find so many things that you're deeply concerned about. Relationship, financial squeeze, health. I don't know what's happening in your life, but I'm sure in the quiet moments when you're driving alone, there's things that bother you deeply that you're afraid about. But our response should not be fear, but faith. So as Mark is ending his gospel here, it's not ending in fear. It's actually an invitation for how will we respond? How will you respond? Mark's saying, did you get the lesson? Did you get it? He's saying time after time, people see a powerful move of God and respond in fear. But did you learn how you're supposed to respond? It's actually brilliant. Do you see that you're supposed to come in faith and rely on him? So you have the God of all things who came for you as a baby grew up and was crucified so that you might have life. And he was raised from the dead and is now king over all things. Nothing is overwhelming to Jesus. Nothing in your life that you're afraid of is Jesus also afraid of. Nothing intimidates Jesus. So as you look at your resurrected king, may that be a reason for you to have hope and to have faith. And also, what is your response to hearing this story? Do you actually trust that Jesus is God in the flesh, crucified, raised from the dead? Will you actually trust him? Or will you stay back and fear about how that might affect your life? What you might have to give up? How you might have to change? Or will you actually trust him? So that's our first response. Our fear should be overcome by faith to trust in Jesus. But secondly, we're also called to share. We are called to share. Throughout the New Testament, when we see Jesus's resurrection referred to, it's often, very often tied to the Christian's hope in a future resurrection as well. So for those who trust in Jesus, they're looking forward to the time when they will be transformed and have the same body that Jesus has. So we don't remain dead. Our hope is that we will one day live even as he lives. So it says this in Romans 6, verse 5. Man, this is good news, but it's not even relevant to us fully. But here we go. Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Or again in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But Christ has indeed, I love Paul's just going after it, indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus is the first fruits referring to there's a huge harvest coming after of those who will be resurrected, even those who believe and trust in him. 
This is often how Scripture responds. Jesus was raised from the dead, so we have a future hope in the resurrection. I point this out because in the Gospels, it's interesting. You don't find this happening. It's not because we shouldn't actually have this hope, but they actually go in a different direction, which is really fascinating. Again, N.T. Wright, he draws this out that again, though Jesus' resurrection is constantly tied to the Christians, those who hope in Jesus, their hope in a coming resurrection. In the Gospels, instead, we find a sense of open-ended commission within the present world. He means this, Jesus is risen, therefore you have work ahead of you. So we see this, look at verse 7, where the young man is speaking to the women. Look at verse 7, he says, But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So the very first response to the news that Jesus is resurrected is for people to go and report this to other people. And when Jesus interacts with his disciples later, he gives them what we call the Great Commission. Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That you have a commission now within this present world to go and do work. We have a reason to spread this message. We have work to do. It was the same in this day. They hear Jesus is raised from the dead. They begin to tell other people. But what's amazing to me, but shouldn't be, Jesus is still raised from the dead. It's 2,000 years later, but that fact has not changed at all. That is such immense news then, and it is such immense news now. Even though we've heard about it many times. Jesus is still king and reigning over all things and raised from the dead. And that has the deepest implications for your life, for your family, and for your neighbors. Our urgency has not changed one iota, not even a little bit. The power of this news is still so pivotal. So we are called to share this message, to speak this message to people. And I know in Christian circles, sometimes it can feel like a weight, the obligation, the heaviness to share this news about Jesus. And you might want to keep it in, especially in our society today, where there's a pressure not to share these things. But I just want to give you again a story about how sharing the truth of Christ is immensely rewarding. Man, it's so good. Not only is it massively urgent today, nothing has changed in the need for us to speak it, but it is still rewarding to our hearts. There's a book I was recently reading by Chuck Colson. He was a lawyer for President Nixon during the whole Watergate scandal, and he ended up going to jail for some shady business that he was doing then. But he became a Christian while in jail, came to know Christ. And when he got out, he started a ministry called Prison Fellowship, where he was helping prisoners all over the country. It's a fantastic organization. And as he was working with this group, he learned about a woman named Murdy Powell and how she was helping prisoners. And Murdy Powell had had a really difficult life. She had grown up very poor. She'd gotten married, had kids, but a lot of health issues. Her husband had died, left her as a widow, taking care of these kids, working all of these difficult jobs, lost a couple of her kids, so that she ended up in her 90s in this low-income nursing home that she just said felt like death. Just people forgotten and left behind in this nursing home. And she's in her 90s, all isolated and alone, and she's crying out to God saying, God, will you just take me home? I'm ready to be done. Will you take me home? And she hears Jesus clearly tell her three words, write to prisoners. 
right to prisoners. It's never crossed her mind before, but what? Right to prisoners? But she obeys. So she gets out a pen and paper, and she writes to, just addresses it to Atlanta Penitentiary, Atlanta, Georgia. I love how simple that was. And she doesn't know who to write to, so she just says, Dear inmate, and just says, like, I, I want to get to know you. I'm just going to give you love freely and just want to re- correspond with you. Next thing you know, she was writing to over 40 prisoners all over the country. It's like a full-time job corresponding back and forth with all these people. And she says she doesn't just share things about her life and make it about her flesh and her, her life and who she is. She said she always listened to the Spirit. And she said, God, what do you want me to say to this prisoner? What do you want me to write to this person? And then she would write that out, sharing Jesus, sharing Jesus. It's incredible the response that she got from this. Here's uh, one letter back that she got from someone. It says, Dear Grandmother, because everyone just called her Grandmother, I received your letter and it made me sad when you wrote that you think you may not live much longer. I thought that I would wait and come to see you and then tell you all you have meant to me, but now I've changed my mind. I'm going to tell you now. You've given me all the love and concern and care that I've missed for years. And my whole outlook on life has changed. You've made me realize that life is worth living and that it's not all bad. You claim it's all God's doing, but I think you deserve the credit. I don't think I was capable of feeling love for anyone again, but I know I love you as my very own precious grandmother. And this is just one of many, many, many letters of one woman who seemingly was forgotten in a nursing home in her 90s, wishing she was done with life. But God was using her in powerful ways to share the truth of Christ. Powerful ways. She was just willing and responded in obedience. And I love Murdy's, she said this when asked about like how this affected her life. She said, the Lord has just blessed me wonderful, she said. I've had the greatest time of my life since I've been writing to prisoners. So here she is all alone in a, in a place that would be a nightmare for so many people. And she's saying, I'm having the time of my life. She is so happy. How so? How so? Because the sharing the truth of Christ is deeply rewarding and having impact on people in an eternal way. So you, you have right now the most beautiful message about who Jesus is. You have the most beautiful message for so many people who are lost and don't know who they are, don't know what they're doing with their life, don't know their value. You know their value in Jesus and can speak to them the hope that they have in Christ. That's not changing as based on circumstances. Let me tell you, you could not have more value because the God of all things was crucified for you. How many lives would that change here in Park City? people trying to work, earn it, relationships all over the rat race of us trying to affirm ourselves if we would realize what we have in Jesus. So it's immensely rewarding sharing about Christ and the hope we have because of his resurrection. And this is what I'm excited about in Lions too. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And we just want to unleash that in this little town called Lions. It's 3,200 people. It's not real big or impressive in really any way, to be honest with you. I'm learning how to love this town, but externally, just the way we view things in the world, it's not awesome. But I'm learning to love this town because God cares about Lyons, Kansas. He cares about it deeply. He was crucified for the people of Lyons, Kansas. He could not care more about that town and all its struggles and difficulties. He wants to see it flourish. So for us as a church, we want to come in and see people baptized, come to know him, to hear the gospel. 
see families transformed, see businesses flourish, this town change. That's what we want to do. That's where again, I'm very grateful. You are already a part of this work. You're already a part of it. And praying for us and supporting us. Jason and Renee Yabara are part of our launch team. They joined us. Also Caroline Riggenbach. She's helping out with our children's ministry. It's been so helpful to have these people. We just started our launch team training at the beginning of August, and it was shocking because we had over 40 people join us, which was more than our goal. And at the beginning, say like in May, I was like, there's no way this is going to happen. Because the thing we most need to do in networking, getting to know people because of coronavirus, was the one thing we weren't able to do. But God brought us people nonetheless. We were also freaking out a couple weeks ago because we were hoping to meet in the high school, but the school board understandably denied our request because of the coronavirus, saying you need to wait till after the pandemic is over. So I was like, Lord, where in the world are we going to meet? There's not a ton of options in lines. We were just scraping the bottom of the rail trying to find anything. Leasing an option could not find anything. And God just recently opened a door for us, as Landon mentioned, to meet at the K-State Extension Office in Lyons. It should be a great and perfect location for us. So time after time, God's providing. And I tell you, he is the shepherd of this church. He's the one leading this church. And he's the one who's going to be glorified as lives are transformed. And that's what we're after. And so again, I just come to you this morning because another need that we have is just financially. We have a launch budget of $62,000. As Landon referenced, there's a lot of things you need to buy for a church. A lot of things. And we need that help. And I know, I'm deeply convinced God is going to meet every need we have. And even if we find costs that are above what we expected, God will meet every need we have. But I also know, He delights in doing that through His people. He could just automatically give us money, but He loves working through His people, through you here. And I know He's also going to be meeting every need that you have as you trust in Him, as you trust in Him. So I have to just simply ask for your help in this church financially, but also in prayer, also in prayer. And to thank you, Lent, also that your church is matching whatever you give up to $5,000 is fantastic. I love that. I love that. So again, thank you for letting me come here this morning and update you. I'm excited to come back, hopefully in a couple months. We'll see when I can come, but to tell you what God's been doing, how he's been working. So with that, pray with me and we'll sing a little bit more. Lord, there's nothing better than knowing you really is nothing better than knowing you, Lord. It's so easy to get caught up in everything else happening in our lives, and we just miss out on the best gifts sometimes of just quietly abiding in your life, just rejoicing in all the gifts that you've given us in you. You give us joy. You give us peace. You grow us by your Spirit so that we look more and more like you, and that's the best, to live like you, to walk like you. And you've called us into fellowship with your son. I love that. Not just to complacency or going through the motions. You call us to know you. That's such a good gift, God. So as we all go back home today, would there just be a deep hunger in the people in this room to have real relationship with you, deeper and deeper. Fellowship with you, communion with you, God. So draw us into that. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.